Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would be faithful to you in the midst of our suffering, and in that faithfulness glorify you and be glorified in you. Open your word to us now. Give us ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. The beautiful thing about the beginning of this second letter to the church in Thessalonica is that Paul gives us what you might think of as a snapshot of a praiseworthy church. I don't know about you, but I'd like us to be a praiseworthy church. And so when we see what it is that Paul praises, he indicates to us what we might think of as the attributes of a church that is worthy of praise. What is it that Paul is thankful for? What is it in Thessalonica that fills him with gratitude? Well, in a word, it's growth. It's growth. He says the Thessalonians are growing abundantly in faith. And that's one of the things he's thankful for. They're also growing in another way. They're increasing in their love for one another. So they have faith and love, which are two of the three things you need. Just hope would complete the package. And they have hope as well. Hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming, as we see as we continue to read. It's because of that hope that they are steadfast, he says, in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. He doesn't lead with that. He leads with the reasons that he's grateful for the growth that they're experiencing. But then we find out that this growth is taking place in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution. And it's interesting Because for me as a pastor, when I talk to pastor friends about difficult things that their churches are having to go through, things that people in their congregations are suffering, I'll oftentimes in my weakness find myself feeling grateful 
that it's them and not us. I'm so glad we're not having to go through that. We've got enough trouble without having to worry about that. And yet, it's precisely in moments of suffering and even in persecution that this church demonstrates what it is that is so praiseworthy. The kind of church that the apostle delights in isn't free of persecution, isn't free of affliction. It's tested by those things. It has them. It's being tested. And it's not discouraged by that testing. Instead, it's steady. It's committed. It's even hopeful. The church, in other words, is resolute. It's a church with resolve. It's determined to be faithful and loving despite its circumstances. That's the kind of church I think we should aspire to be as well. But a resolute church needs the right resolutions. And on New Year's Day, it's not a bad time to talk about resolutions, is it? If you think about it, when we use this word resolution, there's more than one sense that we use it in. Uh, You can make a resolution, but you can also have resolution. So we can distinguish between those two things, making a resolution and having resolution. Making a resolution, that's like coming up with a good idea that you want to implement, some habit or discipline that would make a positive difference in your life. That's the kind of resolution we're often thinking about on New Year's Day. We're going to make a resolution. But having resolution means being committed to following through, having the strength or conviction to keep going in the face of difficulty. And when we think of resolutions on a day like this, uh, there's a part of us that knows. No matter what resolutions you make, whether or not you keep them will depend on how much resolve is actually behind them. Now, the kind of resolutions we tend to focus on are what we might think of as ethical resolutions, good habits that we want to adopt or maybe renew, virtues that we want to develop, that sort of thing. We're focused in the realm of the ethical on a day like this as individuals, but also, I think, as a church. So that when you ask yourself, well, what, what resolutions should grace make for the coming year, you might think about what our needs are and, and, and the things we want to see fulfilled. As you know from our recent congregational meeting, we need a newer, larger space to meet in. We want to expand the the reach of our ministries in the year to come. So you might think of those as our resolutions, but really those are goals, not resolutions. The resolutions would be the, the habits or practices that would get us to those goals. If we need resolutions, if we need to look at habits and practices... Perhaps there's no better example than what we find in this church in Thessalonica. As a church, we might resolve to be more like them in the year to come. Not to run from hardship, but to endure it. To grow in our faith when we are tested. To love one another more as we serve together under pressure in the place that God has brought us to. Those would be worthy resolutions for a church that wants to be steadfast in the way that the Thessalonians were steadfast. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, the the flip side of New Year's Day is that oftentimes we're making this year most of the same resolutions that we made last year. In fact, most of last year's resolutions we discontinued so early in the year that we can make them again now, and it's almost like we're doing it for the first time. 
as if we never even had those thoughts before. Our resolutions are fleeting. We turn over the same leaf over and over again because our determination doesn't last. We make resolutions, but oftentimes we don't have resolve. And ethical resolutions have to have both of those things in order to persevere. Another way of thinking about it is this. Change only leads to growth when it's backed with commitment. When our resolutions are backed with resolve, they actually can accomplish a great deal. You can make a lot of ethical progress. I mean, imagine it's the promise of a day like this, right? You could literally make a determination this morning and you could leave this place and you could keep it day after day and everything after today could be different, right? You could make incredible progress if you could just make resolutions and stick to them with resolve. If you resolve to stop abusing alcohol, for example, and you follow through on that commitment, then over time, over the course of the year, you would see actual improvement in your life. If you resolve to start going to the gym and you followed through on that commitment, then over the course of this year, you would grow in strength over time. You would see results. If you resolve to pray, and to read scripture more often as a regular discipline, and you followed through on that commitment, then you would see your understanding of spiritual things deepen over time. If today you decided that you were going to love your family, your friends, the people that God has placed in your life sacrificially, day after day, and you did that, you followed through, then you would see those relationships build over time. Those would be real improvements, valuable improvements, things that you could do if only you would make the commitment and stick to it. Ethical resolutions can make real differences, but they are hard to keep. That's the irony. As valuable as they could be, Like, we can all recognize that if I just started doing things differently, if I did just one thing differently, then this time next year, everything could be different. You would think that realization would be enough day by day, no matter what happened, to make you stick to it. But for most of us, it's not. We see the value, but over time, as we're tested, that resolve diminishes. We can't keep our resolutions, which is why people who are like that People who just wake up one day and decide, hey, I'm going to start going to the gym. Hey, I'm going to stop drinking. Hey, I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. And they just do it, apparently without any difficulty. We look at those people and we're like, they're strong. Those are strong personalities. In the church, we look at people like that and we say, they're saints. There's something different about those people. They're not like us. Most people fail to accomplish things simply by resolving and sticking to it. Even the the ones who do, even the strong ones, really only accomplish so much, if you think about it. You can make a resolution today to improve your life, and you can stick to it and see real benefits, but there's only so much that will accomplish. You can resolve to improve your life, but it won't save your life. You may be better for a season, but you are still going to die. There's a limit to what our resolve can actually accomplish. The kind of hope 
that maintains faith and love over time and testing is more than just an ethical resolution. It's a hope that we might call an eschatological resolution, which is a little bit different. Right? Our own hope is not in our own resolve. It's not in our own strength to make a decision and stick to it. But rather, our hope is in God's resolution. Now, that's resolution in a different sense. Now we're talking about resolution in a third way. Uh, a way that you might think of uh, in terms of the world of storytelling. Resolution in the way that stories are resolved. Every story moves forward towards resolution, towards the point when the conflict is resolved, when the questions are answered. This is when the wrongs of the story are set right, where the mystery is revealed. It's when the villains are brought to justice and the victims are vindicated. That is the resolution of the story. And when you're following a story, when you're reading along, the thing that hooks you and pulls you forward is the longing for that resolution. You want to see those things happen. You're engaged with the story because you care about the resolution that is coming. You're not just longing for the story to end. It's not that you just can't wait for the book to be over. Ironically, you want to get to the end and you never want it to be over. Because what you're longing for is the the wholeness, the completeness, when everything is set right. You're longing for the promise of the story to be fulfilled. We might call that narrative justice. Narrative justice. When the Bible gives us God's narrative justice, the resolution of God's story. And when I say God's story, this is our story too. It is the human story. That story too has a resolution and the resolution comes with the revealing of the Lord. This resolution is what all our hope aspires toward. So when we say that we long for God to fulfill his promises, What we're saying is we long for Christ to return again in power. We are longing for the Lord Jesus to be revealed. And that will happen, Scripture says, on the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is depicted here in 2 Thessalonians 1 as a day of judgment. The description of that judgment here draws heavily on Old Testament language. In fact, the the language of this text in in Greek follows the Greek translation, the Septuagint translation of Old Testament prophetic descriptions of this coming judgment. So much so that here Paul engages in some, some Hebraisms where he does some things that are characteristic of Hebrew expression more than Greek. So we see some doubling up or some repetition of ideas saying the same thing over again in different words, but it demonstrates that his idea of the resolution of the story is the same resolution that the prophets of the Old Testament anticipated. And that judgment, that resolution, he sees as a source of hope. But when you ask yourself, how can judgment be a source of hope? The answer is simple. Because for those who are persecuted and suffering, it is. Because the day of judgment is the day of justice, the day of resolution, where the questions are answered and the mysteries are revealed. This is why the Thessalonians, when they're faithful in suffering, Paul says this is evidence. 
what's happening in your life is evidence, he says. He says it's evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So that testing, that suffering is something that God is doing that shows a worthiness in them. Their endurance glorifies him. The suffering doesn't mean they're unworthy. They're not suffering because they're not doing things correctly, because they're not pursuing God faithfully. It's just the opposite. The suffering shows that God is making them worthy. That tested faith is what renders all of us worthy of the kingdom, that faithfulness under fire, so to speak. We often look at the breakdown of the world through sin and conclude that God doesn't care about justice. But here, Paul makes it clear that justice is coming. But it's coming with the revealing of Christ, the Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus is revealed, he says, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word revealed is significant because the, the, the Greek word underneath that is apocalypsis. The book of Revelation, the final book of the New Testament, is the revelation of John. But it is literally the apocalypse of John. Apocalypse means revelation. Not in modern English. If I say things are going to get apocalyptic, that's bad. Like, you don't want things to get apocalyptic in your world. But literally, in its original sense, that's exactly how you want things to get. Because when things get apocalyptic, Jesus Christ is revealed to us in power. The apocalypse of the Lord Jesus is good news. He comes in flaming fire. Now you might think there of the, the flaming fire and the burning bush, which did not consume the bush when God revealed himself to Moses. You might think of the tongues of fire at Pentecost. You might think of the words of the author of Hebrews, who reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. And Christ returns with his mighty angels with that fire, the presence of God, in order to do justice. Judgment on the enemies of Christ. And here we get one of those parallelisms. Like those who do not know God, that's a very Old Testament way of describing the Gentiles. Whenever you're reading the the Psalms, for example, and there's some reference to people who do not know God, and you ask yourself, who are they? It's them, the nations, the, the Gentiles. But then you get another line, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And again, you might be tempted to think he's talking about two different classes of people, but this is one of those Hebrew repetition things. It's the same. The same people, those who do not know God, are those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an Old Testament concept and a New Testament concept right on top of each other so that we can see the connection as Christ is more fully revealed. Those people suffer on this day of justice punishments. Paul says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. As you weigh those words, eternal destruction, they're terrible words. Because you have to imagine what could be the exact opposites or absence of eternal life. Because here, that's the the way that he's speaking. He's given us sort of the opposite of all our hopes. 
It is the opposite of what we have been promised. If eternal life is to commune with God, to behold His presence surrounded by His power and glory, then eternal destruction is to be cut off from this life. It's true that in our current life, in this age, we can taste a little bit of what this alienation, this destruction may be like. Just as in this age, we taste a little bit of what communion with God might be in our current spiritual life. But these tastes, they're just glimpses. They're, they're, they're analogies. They don't get us to the, the fullness exactly. Either the, the full glory of eternal life or the full terror of eternal destruction. One of my favorite existentialist plays is Jean-Paul Sartre's play, No Exit, where three people are trapped in a sort of purgatory-like cage, and they cannot be happy because of, of the fact that there's three of them. If any two were alone together, they could be happy. It's always the addition of the third that makes them miserable. And the tagline for the play is, Hell is other people. And that's something that resonates. And it's easy to imagine, yeah, that's what it's like, right? In in the afterlife, it'll just be a kind of misery that's sort of like what we experience here, maybe uh, just amped up a little bit, right? We're constantly doing that, constantly trying to tell ourselves that it's not as bad as it seems, to find ways to say, like, if if it's not the, the literal torture pit of the medieval imagination, then maybe eternal destruction is actually just not that bad. And we talk about this idea of alienation from God or or being cast out of God's presence as if that would somehow be better than those literalistic impressions of old, when in fact I think that it's, it's worse. I don't want to do anything in your mind to minimize the terribleness of what it means to be removed from the presence of God and his goodness, from what it means not to possess the eternal life that is promised. Let's not minimize the reality of eternal destruction any more than we want to minimize the reality of eternal life. This punishment is dreadful if it's inflicted on you, but it is justice for the children of God. It is justice for those who are persecuted and who suffer. When he comes, Paul says, on that day, he will be glorified in his saints to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Here's the purpose of it all. The reason for it all is his glory. If you believed in the testimony that Paul proclaimed, then God will be glorified in you and you will marvel at him. And that is the point. That is why he's doing what he's doing. So that he might be glorified, so that you might marvel in him. The glory and the marvel are the purpose of God's plan. And if that's true, if glory is his purpose then we can be confident that he will do what glorifies him. That he will do what astonishes us. That the promises he's made, if they were fulfilled, they would fill us with marvel. 
If we know that his purpose is to do exactly that, then we can be confident that he will do it. His resolution is what fills us with whatever resolution we have. So let your resolution in this life anticipate the resolution that is to come. That's the point. The hope of the Thessalonians, the reason why they can grow in love and in faith, even though they're experiencing so many hardships, is because they have a confidence in that day of justice that is coming, that God will make this right. But it doesn't lead them to apathy. It doesn't lead them to think, so this life doesn't matter. All that matters is what's to come. Instead, they live today in light of tomorrow. To this end, Paul says, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's prayer for a faithful church has three components or three things that Paul prays for us And these are things that we should long for, for ourselves and for one another. We should pray that God would make us worthy of his calling, that he would make us worthy. We are not in ourselves worthy, but we should pray that he would make us worthy by increasing our faith. We should pray that God would fulfill every resolve that we make to do what is good. When we resolve to do good, In our own power, we discover our weakness. But fortunately, we don't have to live in our own power. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit, so we should pray that God would give us the strength to persevere in our resolve for good. And we should pray that for one another as well. And we should pray that God would fulfill every faithful work through his power that every faithful thing that we seek to do as individuals or as a church, that God will fulfill it through his power, not through ours. So the message isn't this. Forget about the ethical and focus on the eschatological. I'm not saying, stop making these resolutions. Just let go and trust in God. Instead, I'm saying something different. The message is this. Make the eschatological hope of the gospel the starting point for your ethical growth in the spirits. So make resolutions and keep them to the best of your ability, but do it in light of God's resolution, God's plan, what God is doing. Your ethical growth will glorify God and glorify you in him because it will prove that his grace is working in you. That's the idea. So what does this mean? Knowing that God will keep his majestic commitments you can determine to keep your own commitments, even though they're more humble than God's. That means you can work on your marriage. You can work on your family. You can do your work, pursue your professional calling faithfully. Be faithful to those things as God is faithful to his commitments. Knowing that God will do ultimate justice, then you can do what you can to make things right in his name now. You can work for justice. You can side with the afflicted. You can alleviate suffering now. You'll never fix the problem. It'll never go away, but you can work towards that end as it reflects 
the mind of Christ. You can also stop limiting yourself according to what you're capable of and instead start trusting God to make you capable beyond your own abilities. You can actually have hope when there is no reasonable grounds for hope if you're trusting in Him and not in yourself. And when He does work in you, if today, a year from now, you look back and you've actually kept some of your resolutions Don't take credit for it. Don't take credit for what you accomplished, but instead give the glory to God because that's the reason he did it in the first place, in order to be glorified. We make it simpler. Whatever you do, don't do it for self, do it for Christ. And if you're doing it for Christ, then you know you have to do it like Christ as well. The problem with our ethical resolutions is often who we make them for. We make our resolutions for ourselves, first and foremost. We make resolutions in order to improve our lives. We make resolutions so that we'll be happier in the year to come, so that we will be more accomplished, we'll be better in some way, and our lives will be enriched. But imagine what would happen if you were to make a set of resolutions that aren't for you. What if the resolves that you were to pursue were for other people? What if you were resolved to serve them, not yourself? What if you were resolved to glorify him and not you? Oftentimes, I think we tell ourselves, sort of borrowing from Paul in Colossians 3, actually maybe uh, twisting it, that I can do anything that I want so long as I do it as unto the Lord. As long as I'm doing it for Jesus, it doesn't matter what it is that I'm doing. But I think you'll find that if your starting point isn't whatever I want to do, but if your starting point is as unto the Lord, that might change what you actually do. Because not everything can be done as unto the Lord. And if you begin by looking for what can be done as unto the Lord, he might suggest to you an entirely different set of resolutions. But this, ultimately, this resolve to sacrifice self for the sake of others. That's the example that Jesus has set for us. That was his resolution. Jesus was resolved to bring about the resolution of God's story, of God's plan. Not for himself, but for us. Jesus had nothing to gain personally from his task except what he has gained by raising us up. His aim in everything he did was glory and marvel. And if that's true... In the greatest story of all, then let's let it be true in our stories as well. Let us live for God's glory. Let us live to marvel at his ways. If we're going to resolve anything, let us resolve in the year to come that as we are tested and as we face obstacles, that we would grow because of them as the Thessalonians did and that we would glorify God and that we would marvel at his faithfulness to us. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.